you see these great revolutions of life, the inventions that were necessary to make these great revolutions most often evolve well before the revolution itself. In a different context, do something else. And that's a great general principle because that applies to the anatomies we're talking about, like, you know, the bones. But it also applies to the organs, like not the bones, but like uh, lungs, physiology. But it also applies to genes. Like genes evolve in one context, usually doing make involved in the development of one organ. Then once you have that developmental process, it's like a little subroutine or module that gets turned on somewhere else to make another organ that's different. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 183. And this episode is with Neil Shubin, who is Robert R. Bensley, Distinguished Professor of Organismal Biology and Anatomy at the University of Chicago. So in addition to actively leading research expeditions across the globe, uh, we talk about his work in Antarctica along Antarctica. Uh, my mom, when I was in first grade, I had a spelling test. Maybe it was second grade. I think it was... You know, this is a kind of difficult word, probably second grade. And the word was Arctic. And my mom was convinced that they had given us the wrong spellings because there was a C in Arctic. And she learned, much to her chagrin, that she'd been pronouncing it or spelling it Arctic her entire life. But anyway, we talk about his work in Antarctica along with Alien versus Predator, which is a gem of a movie. But so in addition to all of this expeditionary research. Neil runs the Shubin Lab at Chicago, where they do work on genetics, kinematic fossils, kinematic modeling, sorry, fossils, and so on. They're not moving around uh, fossils, and so on, uh, to investigate the major transitions in evolution. And that's pretty much what we discuss, some of these transitions and how they came about. But we, we focus mainly on the Devonian period, which you will hear plenty about, and how fish moved from water to land. And Neil's most recent book is called Some Assembly Required, Decoding 4 Billion Years of Life from Ancient Fossils to DNA. And you can find a link to that in the description. Reviews, likes, subscriptions, very helpful. Uh, there's also a Patreon, which I have mentioned a few times now and will be continuing to mention. There is an ad-free RSS feed there are show notes, there are transcriptions. There's one tier, currently the Geesling tier. And, but there, there, I think there, there's room for more at some point in the future. Once I get it, fingers crossed, if there are a thousand subscribers at some point, maybe I'll start doing some AMAs, but maybe that's a reason not to uh, subscribe or patronize me. Anyway. That's that. And without any further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Neil. At this point in the show, the only other evolutionary biologist I've spoken with is your colleague, Andy Knoll at Harvard. And we talked about the earliest life on Earth and how it shaped the climate. Yet, I understand, and from looking at some of your work, there are there are a plethora of different topics in evolutionary biology, and maybe we'll get to some in a moment. But I wanted to start with how your particular interests form. So why have you and your lab been devoting so much time to 
the first fish that ventured onto land. Because it's a subset of, I think, one of the great problems in biology is how do the major transitions in evolution happen? You know, I mean, I love these, I love these puzzles where it seems so impossible at first, and then you just show well, and, and that it actually happened in some very surprising ways. That is, going from a fish to a tetrapod, or from a single-celled organism to a multicellular organism, or any of the great transitions in evolution, those really kind of explain a lot. Number one, they tell us a lot about how our world came to be, um, but they hold all kinds of important biology, geology, <clears throat> and so in within them, uh, they are you know fundamentally multidisciplinary questions, uh, and they almost always take us to surprising places where I learn new things and I can apply it, apply it to other fields. So um, the fish to tetrapod transition. So I've always been interested in great transitions in evolution since freshman year of college. Um, just Carl Sagan, the great, great documentaries, great books, um, Jay Bernowski's Ascent of Man. These, these really caught, and caught, my, caught my interest. But when I, um, when I was in graduate school, I was sort of looking around for a problem to work on. And I was in a seminar. Uh, it was essentially great transitions in the history of life. And, uh, you know, each week was a different transition and we, you know, a student would present, we'd get all the, you know, the papers, both classic ones and recent ones. And, you know, it's sort of like speed dating with great puzzles in science. And I remember seeing the fish to tetrapod transition. I remember the moment I saw this, like one sort of cartoonish slide that showed a fish on top, tetrapod on the bottom, little arrow connecting them. I was thinking, Maybe I should just cut you off very briefly to clarify tetrapod for our listeners who don't yeah. know. That's four feet, the whole right? thing, sure. You know, so when I saw this diagram, uh, which had a fish on top and it had a terrestrial animal, land living animal with arms and legs, we call them tetrapods on the bottom with an arrow connecting the two. I was like, whoa, that's a first class scientific problem. How did that happen? Because everything has to change. Right. You're living in water versus living in land. Uh, you know, think about all the physiological variables. You're dealing with gravity as a new new force, desiccation, new sensory environment. <clears throat> So I thought that would be a great problem to hang my shingle. And uh, I was training to be a paleontologist at the time since we've done taken other approaches. Uh, but yeah, that was kind of what it was really kind of that inspiration, seeing a diagram that kind of created a puzzle in my head, you know. Hmm. Just a, a very quick question. You said you've always been interested in the major transitions in evolution beyond uh, fish to tetrapod. Oh, yeah. What are some of just the other major transitions? Original life, origin new kinds of metabolisms, photosynthesis, photosynthesis and aerobic metabolism, origin of eukaryotic cells with different kinds of organelles in them, uh, the shift from single-celled organisms to organisms with bodies composed composed of many cells, millions if not billions if not trillions of cells, um, the transition from vertebrates from invertebrates to vertebrates, fish to tetrapod. Reptiles to birds, reptiles to mammals, primates, you know, non-bipedal primates to bipedal primates. You know, I mean, pick your, pick your transition. And, um, yeah, and I think what kindled that really was, um, if you really kind of want to know history, is, is I love museums. I, I really did not like classes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd look forward to like those field trip days where the teacher would say, we're going to the museum today. Mm -hmm. And there was always a refuge for me, an intellectual refuge, as well as a refuge from 
class. <laughs> um, and I just love that stuff. And I remember like thinking about these puzzles, looking at like the fossils of dinosaurs or, um, uh, or just the dioramas of animals from the past and thinking about lost worlds and change and, and so forth. And that sort of crystallized into a scientific interest. Well, one other thing that you said that jumped out at me is that evolutionary biology uh, is concerned with fundamentally multidisciplinary questions. So I, there's geology, as I found with Andy Knoll, there's chemistry. Most of what I know about evolutionary biology, which is very little, uh, comes from a few books I've read by Dawkins and Gould, which I think are more theoretically oriented, and then the philosopher Daniel Dennett which is more mm -hmm. philosophically oriented. But I'm wondering how the field or how a, an evolutionary biology department breaks down in a contemporary academic setting. Are there major different branches of evolutionary biology that are all just seeking to better understand evolution with different tools? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the way I look at it is the questions are the unifying theme. It's what's different are the tools. You know, I just even look at that in my lab, how it breaks down. So the way I'll just to give you the micro level in my lab, then we'll go to the department in the lab. You know, we look at great transitions in evolution, particularly the the one, the fish to terrestrial animal. But there's a genetic piece where we look at the genes and developmental processes in living creatures, fish and amphibians, and try to understand the differences and similarities among them. Then there's the paleontological piece where we go out and find fossils. There's comparative anatomy as well. All these are different empiricisms, different tools that feed into answering a common question, right? And so when you think about how departments are organized, like in Chicago, we'll have different departments. We'll have a department of molecular biology and a department of anatomy and a department of human genetics. But evolution is in, a, in what's called, a, we call them graduate committees, which is basically multi-departmental. So when we train students, we it goes among all the departments. Actually, it goes to some departments in the humanities, social sciences, there's the Field Museum of Natural History, Lincoln Park Zoo, things like that. So it truly is multidisciplinary, you know, and the way it, um, and the way it plays out is, is typically it's, the differences are really kind of among empirical, empirical approaches, you know, less the questions that people ask. And so you have theoreticians, um, you know, quantitative and theoretical genetics, geneticists, molecular geneticists, um, all, all different kinds, you know, and, it's been a bit of a struggle in my career because I've wanted to do it all, you know, because to answer some of these questions, but there's only a limited amount of time in life. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I saw that in on your lab's website that you're researching genetics, uh, kinematics, skeletal structure. You have uh, expeditions going on, all sorts of things. But one one last question I wanted to ask, though, about the the breakdown within the field is that. I saw you wrote that you believe progress in evolutionary biology. It comes from studying different scales of uh, time, uh, physical structure. So I'm guessing that means uh, gross anatomy and then maybe cellular biology and then phylogenesis. And I'm wondering what all of this means. How is it, how it connects to the different uh, branches that you just mentioned of evolution? Well, I mean, think about this, um, Molecular changes to genes cause changes in the DNA, which cause changes in development, which cause changes in anatomy, which affect an animal's ecology and the workings of its environment. 
So when you th- want to understand all that, you're transcending multiple levels of organization from gene to development to anatomy to ecosystem. And I'm skipping a whole bunch of levels in there, but mm-hmm. you know, that's the idea, right? So if you want to get a sense of like evolutionary revolutions, great transitions, you really got to start thinking about integrating these different levels of organization, but it's also different temporal time, right? So there's the kind of developmental change that happens in an individual. Then there's the kind of changes that happen over generations. There's kind of evolutionary changes that happen in short time scales. There's evolutionary changes that happen in long time scales. So really, um, you know, it's, it's, and it's hard for one person, obviously, to do all those kinds of things. But you have to keep your mind open to that, that the, the questions are really, you know, uh, that they transcend temporal and spatial scales. One other context setting question I wanted to ask that connects to temporal scales is you're particularly interested in the Devonian and the Triassic periods. And maybe we should start with when these were and what their key features are that make them so important to the work that we've been dancing around so far. So, I mean, what's great about both those time periods, and I'm working less on Triassic now, I'm really kind of mostly working on Devonian, but they're both time periods that have have had a major effect on the modern world. That is, during those periods, much of what we take for granted in our modern world was shaped. Devonian um, is known as the age of fishes, the origin of different kinds of sharks, the origin of different kinds of what are called ray-thin fish, which are kind of most of the fish you think about. the larger lobefin fish, of which we're related to the lobefin fishes, um, much diversification, much new um, novelty, innovation happened then. You know, starting around 400 million years ago, extending all the way to about 365, 362 million years ago. So it's, you know, so it's a, a critical time in that way. The Triassic also, in its own level, for say rep, what we call reptiles, which is, you know, essentially a time period from about 225 million years ago to about a little less than 200 million years the origin of crocodiles, turtles, mammals, um, pterosaurs, um, lizards, and then even in amphibians, uh, salamanders and frogs. So you've had, you know, both those windows were sort of crucibles of innovation for understanding vertebrate organisms. So if you're like a field paleontologist like myself, and you kind of want to choose a time period where you're going to likely find something fossil, a material object or you know, an ecosystem, understand an ecosystem that really changed the world. It's Triassic and Devonian, you know, there are others as well. Cambrian's another one at a different level, but, um, which is earlier, 500 and so million years ago. Um, you know, so I, I was attracted to both because I'm interested in, in the evolution of vertebrate organisms with backbones and skeletons. And both are really kind of pivotal. We focus mostly on the Devonian period now. Uh, because uh, again, the fish to land living animal, fish to tetrapod transition is a big deal. Hmm. I'm sure there's something of an arbitrary component to when you deter- when you decide to demarcate one period from another. But take the Devonian period. You said it's the age of fishes, where all these fish uh, branched off. We had lobefin fish. Uh, 
different sorts of sharks. I think you said, did you say it was from about 400 to 352 million years ago? 362, yeah. I mean, that you, people quibble over some of the boundaries there, but there's an extinction of a couple extinction events at the end, which kind of marks the end of it. There's a big change okay. there. Um, okay, so yeah, so wh- why is it that you decide to end it there, or why is it that you decide to end the Triassic when the Triassic ends there? Where yeah, clearly there are still lots of like, so what geologists have done for eon, for a while is they've mapped these layers by the fauna and flora inside them. So the plants, the animals, and so forth. And usually at the end of these, at the beginning and the end of these periods, there's a notable break, you know? And so it was something that they could compare among regions of the world. So they say, ah, I have this sequence in this cliff here in North America. I have this Eastern North America. I can compare it to this sequence here in Western North America. Oh, and look at here. It's something very similar is happening in Europe. You know, so these are these are horizons in the geological record that can be compared conveniently among different locations. And mm-hmm. typically what that is, is changes in the fauna and flora, um, you know, the plants, and the animals. Um, and usually there are sharp breaks that 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 um, that um, demarcate them. And they've been pretty useful, honestly. Um, you know, you can do these comparisons when I'm working in a Devonian rock, say, in central Pennsylvania. I kind of know where I am and I can use those same observations whether I'm in a Devonian rock in the central Arctic, you know, Mm -hmm. or in Africa, you know, so it's turned out to be a very useful, you know, very useful um, sort of way to, way to see the world. Since I think we're going to talk more about the Devonian period than others, what are the sharp breaks that began and ended it? Yeah, so what begins it is um, is um, there's quite a bit that's going on in the invertebrate world, new taxa that appear. Um, and um, and so if you look in the oceans, what you'll see is there's a faunal change in the ocean among different species there. If you look at the end of the Devonian, you see the same thing, only there it's an extinction. You're not seeing the rise of critters, you know, new things. You're seeing the disappearance of them. And that happens in two phases which people quibble about, like, was it two, was it one big one, that kind of thing. Um, but it's likely two um, at, at the end. So there's clearly, you know, evolutionary breaks at the beginning uh, and the end of the Devonian that you can recognize around the world. Because ha- we, we use mostly for this, we use marine rocks, oceans, because they are widespread. You can compare rather than a, like a little lake, which is local, might be limited in one part of Pennsylvania, and not present in the Arctic. Well, no, you don't want that. You want marine sediments, which, you know, we have oceans where you can compare across the world. So that's kind of the, the tool. Mm-hmm. With the the dinosaurs, which I think are the, I think this is the extinction event that most people are familiar with. It was a, a big asteroid impact. Do we have any idea what caused these marine extinction events? Well, I mean, the same thing would affect it. So I mean, I think there are two big explanations, honestly, for the end Cretaceous event. One is an asteroid. When you think about a big rock like that hitting the Earth, that can change a lot. I mean, if you darken the skies for a period of time, you can affect marine productivity. You can affect productivity on land. And, um, you know, so you would imagine the, the effects would be global and widespread across multiple ecosystems. The other thing is volcanism, which is happening at that time. There's a slow creep of volcanism changing the atmosphere. And so, and changing the oceans as well geochemically. So, you put all this together. There's stuff happening that's affecting the entire planet. You know, when you think about global change today, 
it's not limited just to the terrestrial realm or the aquatic realm. You know, it's affecting all ecosystems, albeit in different ways, uh, but it's affecting everything. And so just so, imagine that at a larger scale, you know, happening in the Cretaceous. So then is the speculation that what ended the Devonian period was certainly volcanism and then possibly another asteroid impact? Yeah, there's been the argument that I don't think there's really evidence for an asteroid impact at the end of the Devonian. And then unlike the, like the Cretaceous has the best evidence for an asteroid impact. Devonian, it's really kind of more other things going on there, changes to the ocean, some volcanism. There may be other things going on that we don't know about. But uh, I'm suspicious that there's probably not an asteroid impact at the end of the Devonian. Hmm. That would cause an extinction. Well, Unlike the Cretaceous, there, where there, we, we know there is one. Devonian, hmm, uh, I don't know if the evidence is quite there. Okay. Well, now without... Uh, further ado, we've we've danced around it enough, but you you said that you're looking for fossils in the Devonian and Triassic period because those are more more the Devonian period now, but because these mark uh, the big changes for what we see today. And you go on expeditions all across the world, though two of the more interesting places you've gone are Antarctica and Canada's high Arctic region. And what brought you to those places in particular? Yeah, so it's not that I like the cold and the polar regime all that much. I do now. I like working there, don't get me wrong. But I didn't choose it. It chose me. And the way it chose me was when you're looking for new places to look for fossils, you begin with a question, right? My question in this case is the origin of land-living vertebrates, right? So if you have, you begin with that question, I in the beginning part of my career, I began with the question, you know, how did mammals came about? Anyway, but now we're looking at this other question, which is the origin of land-living animals. Well, all of a sudden, that defines a time period in Earth history to look at. Because you have well-known phylogenies, evolutionary trees, creatures, that you can map on a stratigraphic column. So you can get an idea of the window of time these fossils likely, you don't know for sure, likely came about. So you have an estimation, it's called an estimation that you make, you know, from those data. So you kind of know, you can estimate an age of rock to look at. The next thing you do is not, you don't, you look for rocks of the right age, but then you look for rocks of the right type to hold the fossils. Not everything's going to hold the fossils. I mean, some just because those rocks don't form fossils, like volcanic rocks. But in other cases, it may be that you have um, rocks that are not the right environment to hold those fossils. They may not have lived there. You know, in the middle of a desert kind of thing. Um, and then third, you look for places in the world that have rocks, that are the right, your rocks the right age and the right type to hold fossils, but ones that are exposed at the surface. So, so when we put all those filters together, right, age, rock type, exposure, it turned out some of the best and most unexplored places to look were in the polar regions. Uh, there are other places as well that are still, um, you know, that I'd still love to get to if I could, but... The, the most um, promising area when we began back in the mid-90s was the Canadian Arctic because it had you know, thousand, over a thousand, several thousand square miles of rock exposed. So if you didn't have ice, you have these rocks um, exposed to the surface. They were mapped by Canadian geologists, so we knew what rocks were where in the, um, in the Arctic. Uh, we knew what environments they were formed in based on the work of those Canadian geologists in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, so we had a lot of information 
right? It was great. So, um, yeah, I was, um, you know, we knew these rocks were formed in ancient delta systems. Perfect, right? Work, you know, if you have the right kind of rock, you can look at estuary, ancient estuaries, ancient rivers, streams, oxbow lakes, and so forth. We knew they were in the right time period. They're about 375 million years old based on previous work. So it's just great, <laughs> you know? And so uh, that's what led us up there. And that's actually what led us down to Antarctica as well. But the Arctic was the one that we spent the most time on. We spent, uh, we started in 99 and spent a number of years up there in the summers. And so a number of summers up there, um, you know, looking. Hmm. A, 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 num a number of questions come to mind here. So there are these very old rocks at the surface in both of these two places. Is this just a feature of geological changes that push these certain layers of rock up to the surface? Or is there some reason that new rock was not created on top of them? Or, or how did or this old rock or new rock was eroded away? Um, okay. Which is the other piece, you know, so yeah. So you have really old rock in Central Arctic, you have really old rock in Greenland, you have really old rock in, I wouldn't say, well, parts of Antarctica, but really kind of mostly South Africa and places like the Australia, places like that, you know. Um, and these are places mostly that don't have a whole ton of tectonic activity, building mountains and erosion, all that sort of stuff. So they've been fairly stable for a long period of time because of the vagaries of plate tectonics. Um, and then know, these areas that we're working on are actually a little more montane. They, uh, they had mountain building episodes hundreds of millions of years ago, which was actually good for us. I don't think I've ever heard montane as an adjective before, but I like it a lot. It's a nice <laughs> use right? of, it has a ring to it. Right? <laughs> yeah, a nice use of some French maybe, but isolating. Yeah, I throw a little, little class around here. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you. Uh, the podcast needs more of that. But isolating ourselves to just these two sites, even though they're quite literally on polar opposite sides of the earth do you find pretty much the same sorts of organisms there Yeah, not the same species but the same kinds yeah um and you know what's really amazing about it okay let me just paint two images for you image number one is you're standing at the top of a mountain in antarctica at say nine thousand feet and you see ice in, you know 180 degrees in front of you and that ice goes hundreds of miles with no land to the South Pole. And you're looking at standing at this mountaintop and you're picking up fossil fish bones. Okay, think about that juxtaposition between present and past. I love to tell students that because it really gives you a sense that just the amount of change our planet has seen, you know, in, in, in the past few hundred million years. Um, really remarkable. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you have this at all, at all kinds of different scales, right? So... Um, the, and what, what's, what's amazing is when you're in Antarctica, I'm looking at similar kinds of rock to what I see in the Arctic, same kinds of streams, same kinds of oxbow lakes, same kinds of estuarian waters of, you know, capture the rock. Um, you know, so I, when I'm, when I see these rocks that I've worked on in the Arctic and I was down at Antarctica a few years later, I felt like I was seeing old friends, right? I mean, they, I knew about them and I've seen them there. Formed under similar circumstances. Now, you will find similar kinds of fish, similar kinds of lobefin fish, but different species, different genera. So there is some difference among them. You know, these creatures spread around the world. But you do find, you know, commonalities. Hmm. Uh, this is 
only barely related, but uh, a worthy digression. And as a, a world tra- traveler and outdoorsman, if only by necessity, are you at all into outdoor gear? Oh, totally. And the thing about it is, oh, yeah, gosh. So the um, I'm the last person you would think that would lead expeditions to the Arctic and Antarctica. I mean, I did not grow up outdoors. It was really by necessity I did it. And then I found a passion in doing it. And then when you find a passion in doing it, what do you think we talk about for 90% of the time when we're not talking science in the Arctic in the tent? We're talking gear. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, this is great gear here. You know, we talk about the old gear. Some of us have gear that we bought like 10, 15 years ago. And all the young whippersnappers come in with the new gear. You know, and we compare the old stuff to the new stuff. And, you know, ah, it's not as good as the, this. This is quality here. This is meant to last. That new stuff, yeah. I mean, you may have the high tech, but it's going to be broken in a year. You know, that kind of thing. So you know, we yeah, have well, those conversations just, all the time. Yesterday, I was just marveling at one of my jackets. I I like gear, and it's like a, just an Arcturix standard, pretty puffer jacket. But I've been wearing it for ten years, and with the exception of some damage that my cat has done, it has just held up perfectly. And I was just wondering if you have a preferred oh. brand of outdoor clothing. Yeah, so um, I'm big into Patagonia for a long time. Number one, I like the mission. Um, you know, I, I, but for a long time, I just sort of bought into Patagonia very early. Um, uh, Mountain Hardware has always been really good. Marmot's been really good, like them. Um, Mammoth is really good. Arcturix is suspiciously absent from your list. No, it is, but it's really kind of expensive, you know. And yeah, um, you know, it's a uh, uh, friend for um, uh, feathered friends for um, for down gear. It's big in Antarctica. Um, yeah, the usual brands, but I most of my stuff that you look at is Patagonia. And the reason why they got my loyalty is I had a Patagonia. I bought a Patagonia parka back uh-huh. in 1989. And it was when Patagonia was doing absolutely crazy colors. It was orange and green and everything. And um, I wore it every year in the field, right? It had, it had like 28, 27 field seasons on it. And it finally began to fail. So I took it back to Patagonia store here in Chicago. And I said, you know, can you guys repair this for me? It's an old friend. I've had it on you know, all these expeditions. And they're like, oh, we can't repair it. But you're welcome to take anything in the store to replace it with. And I was like, I can't do that. I wore this thing for 30 years. You know, you're going to give me a free jacket because this one failed after 30 years of the harshest conditions. But anyway, so they got a lot of loyalty out of me for that one. So. Yeah, no, Arctic Arcturix did something like that for me. I just sent them a jacket in to get repaired. And uh, they sent me back a, a nice, crispy new one. Yeah, no, but, I see. I mean, it's like, you know, these are these these... Yeah, there's a reason why we talk about gear all the time because these companies can be quite good, you know, and they're and oftentimes their mission is good too. So, mm-hmm. uh, one other very unrelated question: Have you ever seen Alien versus Predator? Uh, yes, I did. The and um, unfortunately, <laughs> and the other movie they show a lot in Antarctica is The Thing. John Carpenter's The Thing. Yes, yes, I would imagine. I love Alien. I mean, it's probably a terrible movie, but I love Alien versus Predator just because I love the Predator and the Alien movies, but. For our listeners, I think maybe they're on a geological dig or some sort, but they find Oh, yeah, this- oh, yeah definitely. I mean, aren't they down south? I mean, they're down in our Ar- I thought they were in our Ar- part of it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they find uh, this temple uh, deep beneath the ice with. That's what uh, people ask me all the time. Are you, uh, do you find like, you know, Nazi artifacts in the ice and stuff like that? So, no, we don't. So. No, nothing crazy. One of my favorite things, though, about that movie is that it was rated PG 13 for goo, which I'd, I'd never, <laughs> never seen anything. Uh, before 
So I mentioned that with Andy Knoll, we discussed the development of climate and how it was connected to early bacterial life. But how did these early terrestrial ecosystems evolve? Is this something yeah. that you, you learn about from your polar research? Oh, gosh, yeah. We learn a lot about that. I and mean, from other things, too, you know, other people. So here's when you think about the invasion of land, the vertebrate invasion of land, our bony ancestors, right? That's fish that evolved to walk on land, right? That's what we're thinking about. They didn't walk when they took those first steps into a barren landscape. Plants had already invaded land before our distant ancestors did. Microbes had already, you know, done the deed years before that. Um, and then invertebrates, large insects, spider-like creatures, things like that were on land already. So okay. land was already populated while fish were still confined to the aquatic realm. Land was already populated by shrubs, by tree-like things, by um, ferns, by all kinds of invertebrates, microbes, you name it. They had root systems that went in, they were forming soils for the first time. So when you think about it, plants were really changing the world well before our distant ancestors ever took the first steps on land, right? And indeed, if plants hadn't made that step, we wouldn't be here today. And so plants really were kind of creating a whole new ecosystem with a new set of opportunities for our different distant ancestors. So there's a reason why fish didn't evolve to walk on land 450 million years ago, because there was nothing quite there yet, you know? Uh. So think about that. So you think about the assembly of ecosystems, right? First, the plants, then the invertebrates, microbes probably well before that, and then our, and then our distant ancestors. So when you think about the environment changing, when plants come about on land, all of a sudden you have all these this photosynthesis happening in new ways, right? In new environments. You're having more oxygen in the atmosphere. That changes the world. So think about plants changing the world, literally. Um, and, but by this point, you can ask the question, well, why did our distant ancestors ever leave the water anyway? Well, when you think about what the, what's happening now, you now have this new ecosystem that's forming that has all kinds of opportunity. There's food there. There's large invertebrates. Um, you know, uh, there's no, there are no predators, yeah. <laughs> no competitors. So anything that would get them out of the water where there are tons of predators and competitors, anything getting partially, even partially out of the water would be selected for over long periods of time. So we're the branch of the tree of life that kind of went for the new opportunity, but also got away from predators and competitors by this new, you know, living in this new ecosystem. And it didn't happen at once. It's not like there's like water and land. There's all kinds of interfaces between water and land. There's the shallows, there's the mudflats, there's the water bottom. You know, so these creatures were evolving to these aquatic or semi-aquatic habitats. And in that context, they evolved lots of traits so that would later enable them to commit to land. So think about it that way. Hmm. Uh, I had considered that plants and microbes would have already invaded land, but somehow I, I didn't think at all about insects. How did they make the leap? Well, kind of the same thing. Um you know, they uh, quite literally the leap. Some of these were flying insects. Um, there was a lot, you know, so basically what they did is evolved just like they were aquatic for a long period of time. Some of like those crabs, features that were that useful sort of in aquatic ecosystems were useful for walking on land when it became, I mean, they had legs, you know, they were walking in water bottoms. They're walking in the margins of the water. 
but there was really no reason for them to commit to land until there were plants for them to eat, right? And then when there were plants for them to eat, more of them went out there, and some of them would eat other, would eat the, the insects that were eating the plant. And so it really is, you know, you think about how these eco ecologies are assembled, it really comes down to what the plants are doing, you know, hmm. um, initially. Um, did the land-based vertebrates, though, all come from maybe one species of fish that turned into a tetrapod? Good question. Um, and if you look at the evolutionary trees we have, it would seem that one group gave rise to them. The question, however, is, did that group, did it happen multiple times from that group? That group was widespread. They're widespread from the Arctic to what's today the Arctic and Quebec, Eastern Europe, and so forth. <clears throat> did it happen independently in each of those cases from a common pool? Or did it happen in one pool? I would think it would probably happen independently in, in multiple. Because what happens is things are set up for the changes, <clears throat> for new changes. It's like the timing's right. They have the right anatomy. They have the right genes. And then they're living in the right ecosystem. So that transition can happen quite rapidly in multiple places, which hmm. there's not a whole lot of evidence to support that, but that would be my guess. What I wanted to do was compare that to the insect case, though. Did they come out of just one aquatic creature or? Oh, no. No. Okay. Yeah, they came multiply. So which which kinds and which did they? Well, that I don't into? I don't know the details of the actual the Devonian ones. Yeah, so um, yeah, I have to you have to talk to an invert expert to know because that changes with <laughs> with new discoveries. Oh, okay, okay, great, yeah. And then so maybe we should talk about some of the the actual discoveries that you've made, and the two that come to mind. Well, the first one, and please correct my pronunciation and maybe explain where the name comes from, but that's uh, Tiktaalik rosea. And so what is this creature and, and why is it so important for understanding our well, so Tiktaalik is, if I was to hold it in front of you, the type specimen, we have about 20 specimens now, so it's not particularly rare. It comes from the Canadian Arctic, it comes from rocks about 375-ish million years old. I was to hold the type specimen, it's about four feet long, maybe about a meter and change. Um, and what's great about it is if you look at it, you'd say it's, oh, it's like a fish. It has fins, has scales. Those fins have fin webbing, has a fish-like texture to its bones. And if you know anything about anatomy, you'd see there are fish-like bones in the skull and the shoulder and so forth. However, if you look at the shape of the head, you look at the way the bones and the skull fit together. If you look at the fact that the head can move independently of the body. And if you look inside the fin, you'll see an upper arm bone, forearm bone, even parts of a wrist. You say it's like a limbed animal, a terrestrial animal, so-called tetrapod. So it has both characteristics of both. Um, and I think that's the compelling thing about it, that it has features of both. And it tells us a bit about the sequence of changes that were necessary that happened as fish evolved to walk on land because this is a fish that's beginning to walk. It's a fish that could support its body with its appendages. Has, you can tell by the muscle scars on the shoulder and the upper arm bone, the humerus, that it had massive, um, massive pectoral muscles. And it had a mobile shoulder and it had an elbow that could bend like this, you know. So uh, it was clearly an animal that could, could, could support itself with its body and even walk brace itself with its fins and a current, you name it, all that. And then, um, 
and but we didn't find it by accident, right? That's the other part of the story. That is, we predicted that we would find such a creature in the Canadian Arctic based on a knowledge of age, stratigraphy, and a knowledge of um, the kind of rock that we'd have to look at. We looked at you know delta systems, we looked at rivers and streams, and bingo, there it was. Hmm. But it took um, us six years. It wasn't quite a bingo. It was a bingo <laughs> over six years, so stretch mm-hmm. that out. And then it looks like you also discovered one of its relatives. Uh, again, correct me. Chikitanya, is that Almost. right? Almost. Chikitanya. Chikitanya, okay. Yeah, Chikitanya is a close relative found nearby Tiktaalik. Found it a few years back. Described it just last year. But what Chikitanya is, it's a smaller version of Tiktaalik, but it's not aquatic. Now you could say, okay, well, yeah, maybe it's primitive. Maybe Kikitania is just primitively aquatic because you had to transition from fish to tetrapod. Aquatic things go to terrestrial things. But that's not the case. Kikitania is actually very derived. So it's secondarily aquatic. So its ancestor was a creature that was already kind of making steps to walk on land. But it's a creature that, you know, did a U-turn and went back, evolutionary U-turn, and went back in the water. <coughs> um, and it specialized for life and paddling and swimming and things like that. Um, which is fascinating. Um, so you had, so that sort of beats the notion that, you know, there's a continual train of progress and evolution, which we nobody ever thought recently would think of. But the reality is you have evolution going in all directions at all time, you know, and this is an example of that. Okay. So the, so Tiktaalik became us, but Kikiktanya just went right back and we're not directly descended from it. Exactly. You keep that land stuff. I'll go back in a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so for Tiktaalik, I mean, this is a, a m- many millions of years process or hundred thousands of years process for it to become situated to land. But do you imagine that the way that this happened is, I mean, one of its earliest, uh, cause this is a continuum here. One of its earliest, uh, relatives transitioning to land maybe just saw some like plants that were sort of hovering just above the water and it tried to like nibble at them and then or do you have a, a more sophisticated understanding of how this happened than i, I, I was more suggest. sophisticated but here it is the um tectolic is really specialized for life in water most but it was capable of life on land it was able to walk in the water bottom you know the bottom of the stream or lake it was able to go into the shallows and support itself there. And it was also able to make excursions in the mudflats, right? So it was, I would call it partially, mostly aquatic, but partially terrestrial, right? Um, and it was able to feed. It had big jaws and sharp teeth and all that good stuff. And they can get quite big, actually. It could be quite a predatorial form. Um, but, I, but it hadn't made the commitment to land yet. It took a long time for that commitment to land to happen. Um, many millions of years, several millions of years. Um, and so the next, you know, kind of descendants of or cousins of Tiktaalik that are more um, terrestrial, almost certainly they were spending more time on land, doing traverses, walk actually walking distances on land, but also tethered to the water still. So I think what you're seeing for a long period of time is creatures that are still tethered to the water for reproduction and maybe some feeding, but are taking ever, but are specializing ever more to, to, to being more terrestrial, that is spending more time in terrestrial environments, covering more distance in terrestrial environments, 
maybe finding new food sources in terrestrial environments, but still returning to the water to breed, um, mm -hmm. things like that. So, I mean, so what you have is sort of the amphibious lifestyle coming about. Tiktaalik being more on the fish end of the amphibious lifestyle, but then these other limbed animals that appear in the Devonian and somewhat later, um, they're more on the sort of amphibian end of the um, lifestyle. But uh, I guess two two questions. What was it eating? And then you mentioned some of its, uh, like its its hands or its fins, its arms yes. and legs. How was it breathing? Had lungs. So uh, that's a, let me just get to lungs in a second, but TikTok almost certainly had lungs. Um, the uh, what was it eating it was almost certainly eating fish and invertebrates because it had big sharp fangs kind of anything it wanted you know it was pretty um, think of a small crocodile kind of critter it could eat fish it could eat big invertebrates and some of those invertebrates at this time were quite big um you know so it was, a, it was clearly a carnivore it wasn't an herb hmm. herbivory and vertebrates was not a big deal yet okay. um it was a meat eater so maybe um, it was it was chasing crabs up into the mud flat, something like well, that. Well, probably could be chasing invertebrates, big invertebrates in there, certainly. Or could, be, or could be eating fish still in water, or both. More likely both. Um, but the other thing about lungs is here's the thing. So if you think lungs came about at the transition from life in water to life on land, if you think feathers came about as creatures evolved to fly, you'd be in really, really good company. But you'd also be entirely wrong. We've known it for over a century. Lungs are actually deeply primitive. They evolved eons before creatures took their first steps on land. What you see are lungfish of different kinds um, deeper in the evolutionary tree. Lungs originally arose not to support life on land, but as accessory organs to breathe when the oxygen content of water drops, much like lungfish today. Lungfish today, and there's other species that we don't call lungfish, but like a creature called polypterus, um, these creatures have lungs, but they use them when the, and they have gills, both lungs and gills, and they use them when the oxygen content of water gets really low. So they use the gills when oxygen content's high, gets low, they'd go up to the surface, take gulps, come back down. So lungs didn't evolve at the transition. They evolved well before the transition in creatures that were living in, uh, you know, oxygen areas, environments that had variable concentrations of oxygen through the, through the year. Um, and that's an important principle, that many of the great transitions rely on inventions that were actually ancient. They already existed. That is, the origin of limbed animals and you know, land-living animals didn't really require a ton of new inventions. Yes, there were some, no doubt about it. But a lot of the inventions that they needed to make those first steps actually arose in aquatic fish living in aquatic organisms, in an aquatic environment. You know, um, elbows, <coughs> wrists, necks, shoulders, lungs, all this stuff arose. They're already there in these creatures before they ever took their first steps on land. So that when the environment changed and plants created this ecosystem that was kind of juicy to, you know, to, to, to go on land, they already had some of the inventions that were necessary to do it. You know, so it was changing a function of what already exists. So basically... You know, when you see these great revolutions of life, the inventions that were necessary to make these great revolutions most often evolve well before the revolution itself in a different context to do something else. And that's a great general principle because that applies to the anatomies we're talking about, like, you know, the bones. But it also applies to the organs, like not the bones, but like uh, lungs, physiology, but it also applies to genes. 
like genes evolve in one context, usually doing make involved in the development of one organ. Then once you have that developmental process, it's like a little subroutine or module that gets turned on somewhere else to make another organ that's different, you know? So the processes, the developmental processes that are used to, to make limbs, um, some of those genes are actually, we see them in making genitalia and making parts of the, um, what do we call the axial skeleton, the back and so forth. So genes evolve in one context, then they tend to be repurposed or co-opted, that process to, 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 to operate in another context. So it's again, repurposing, co-option, changing function, all this stuff. That's the, that's the stuff of revolution in evolution. Hmm. Well, I'm really glad that this came up because I hadn't, I hadn't realized that lungs developed so much earlier than the first forays onto land. That's really interesting. And so is this, this bootstrapping principle is very powerful. You already Super. mentioned yeah. earlier. Uh, I mean, fins became our hands. That was bootstrapping. Right. Exactly. You know, you think about it. And evolution couldn't happen any other way, right? It, otherwise, you'd have to ha evolve so many things independently at the same time for this transition to happen. You'd have to have elbows and wrists and and all and lungs and all this stuff happen evolving independently. But no, that's not how it is. They evolved independently, but not at the same time. They evolved early, it, and a creature's adapting to water, you know, to walk on the water bottom or live in the shallows, so that when the time came, the opportunity came where the need came to walk on land, that stuff was already mostly there, you know, so. You mentioned a, a few minutes ago that you think land-based vertebrates descend from Tiktaalik, but that they might have arisen uh, from different branchings of the same species. I'm wondering if one way you or one yeah one way you've uh, found yourself at this conclusion is that you see like different bootstrapping procedures in different classes of mammals or vertebrates yeah i mean think about it this way um if you look at human technologies the one of the reasons why we have patent law is because people can come up with the same technology independently either because they find that information they know something about it or the time is right, and that just it's the inevitable next step, right? Um, well, if you think about organisms, and they have certain genes and developmental processes, you know they they allow certain kinds of pathways of evolution and don't allow others, you know. And so, if organisms are sharing a common environment, and they have common genes, well, the outcome, the evolutionary outcome, may be very simple, even though they're living pretty far apart. See what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. you might have the common outcome. Uh, in that case. And I think that's really important. But the other important thing is Tiktaalik is not the ancestor. It's a cousin of the ancestor because it has some weird traits in it that tells us it's not the actual direct line, but it's a real close cousin, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, yeah. So are you still hunting for that direct line in the same period? I'm always period? hunting. Yeah. I'm always, I'm always doing that. So I'm um, right now we're looking for Tiktaalik 2.0, something a little closer to tetrapods. Uh, we're also looking deeper in the tree. That's what we're doing in Antarctica, looking you know, for Tiktaalik's distant, you know, more ancient relatives. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, um, you know, we're also trying to do, and it's, this is a little more, it's not as flashy, but it's every, but it's really important, is to really understand the ecosystems where all this has happened. So that means collecting all the other species, 
you know, understanding the geology and the setting, the ecological setting, understanding a little bit about, you know, uh, the trophic relationships, who ate who, you know? Um, uh, yeah, all that stuff, you know? And, um, you know, that's the hard work of doing, that's kind of the hard work of field work. I mean, it was hard work to find Tiktaalik, but once, you know, you have that, you really kind of want to understand what the rest of the ecosystem's like. And so that's what we've been doing, you know, after we found Tiktaalik, we returned to those sites a number of years. In fact, we tried to get back last year. It fell through, but, um, <clears throat> um, we'll go back this coming summer. Um, uh, but you know, trying to find more species. We have about 18 other species that lived with Tiktaalik in the same stream, same Devonian stream. So it was a pretty thriving ecosystem. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Speaking of Devonian streams and really trying to understand the ecosystem, what was Tiktaalik's relationship to freshwater and saltwater? And, don't know. We're, sorry? It's a good question. We don't know. Oh, okay. So we find Tiktaalik in what we think are freshwater sediments. We know that. We, we, we estimate that from the plants. We estimate that from some of the geology of the rocks, although that can get a little dicey. But really, it's the plants that they're with. Um, and also the geography of where we are in the basin, the ancient basin, that sort of stuff, which tells us that it's almost certainly freshwater. Um. But there are other relatives of Tiktaalik that have been discovered over the years that live more in the marine end of things, more in the near shore or the estuary, or the tidal flat kind of area. So what we think is, well, Tiktaalik is freshwater, um, but some of its close relatives, a little more ancient relatives, were saltwater uh, or had some, you know, some mix fresh and salt um, that probably these creatures were moving back and forth from the um, from the nearshore environment into the freshwater ecosystem. And, you know, we know creatures that do that today, obviously, salmon, things like that. So, you know, so there probably was some salt tolerance in these creatures. And that probably explains why they're able to, why we find them around different parts around the, the, the globe, you know, because they were able to move along coastlines. Hmm. Is there something about it being more freshwater-based that would have made it more likely to venture out onto land or is that kind of neither here nor there? No, I don't think so. I, mean, I think, you know, cause if you think about tidal flats, they actually force animals to get on land in a daily rhythm. Right. And so, no, I could see both as being settings for creatures walking around both the, both the tidal setting as well as a, a river setting um, or a pond setting. It's, it's hard to say because these creatures were <coughs> clearly walking on the water bottom, but they were clearly able to live in the mud flats. You know, um, and but whether those mud flats were tidal or whether they were, you know, just on the margins of streams or small lakes, um, it's hard to say because we find them in both environments. Well, for these last few minutes, I'd like to shift a little bit from the expeditionary research to what you're doing in the the lab, where we've already mentioned you you're doing work on genetics and kinematics and structural analysis. But so how do these two approaches fit together? How do you take what you find in the field and then you bring it back and then what do you do with it? Right. So if I look at, if I say, look at a tree of life and I put land living animals with true limbs on there with fingers and toes and then I put Tiktaalik and its relatives and I put other fish in there, what it really shows is the major parts of the appendage of our own appendages originally appeared in fish 
that's kind of what the fossils and comparative anatomy tells us. However, if you look at living fish, zebrafish, trout, salmon, you name it, um, they have fins with fin bones inside, but they look nothing like our limbs. But the paleontology would predict that, you know what, they may have the, some of the machinery, genetic machinery, that's necessary to build limbs. That sort of flows from so that argument. So what we do is we look at the genes that control the development of our fingers and toes and wrists and ankles and arms and legs. And we look to see whether they're present in fish, and indeed they, many of them are. Then we look to see what they're doing in fish. And guess what? They're working in fin development in fish, as well as other things. Um, so the genes that are involved in forming our wrists and digits are present in fins, and they're making the terminal end of fish fins, or they're patterning the terminal end of fish fins. So there's a genetic continuity there. So we can ask the question, then, once we have that, what's similar and what's different genetically about fish and amphibians? Right? And we can begin to see how are they similar, how are they different, and what are the likely genetic changes that made a digit out of a fin bone? What are the likely genetic changes that made an elbow and a wrist and these different components of the appendage? And we can do that by comparing extant creatures. So a lot of our research is really looking at those genes, looking at where they're turned on during development, where they're active in the fin, right? About whether they're turned on and active in the terminal end or proximal end, close to the body, far away. Are they functioning in a similar way in fish and tetrapods? Are they doing something different in fish and tetrapods? Um, and then using CRISPR-Cas gene editing to knock them out, to turn them off, and modify them in different ways to see what, you know, what the evolutionary consequences of those things are. Then the other thing we do is we look at the, the software behind all this. So these genes are active in certain times and places of the appendage, right, whether it's a fin or a limb. But we can look at the parts of DNA that control the switches that control when and where they're active in development. And we can compare that sort of genomic software, if you will, from a fish to a tetrapod. And we find lots of similarities, some differences, but you'd be stunned at some of the similarities we see. So, um, yeah, so kind of like, you know how a paleontologist looks at antecedents in the fossil record? Well, we're looking at antecedents in the genetic record, right? To ask, and then go forward. Like, what are the, and then ask the question, what are these genes actually doing to make, uh, to make appendages? So we do everything from looking at gene activity to genomics to development, developmental genetics, uh, to um, you know, gene editing, things like that. So in your lab, you're using CRISPR on fish to test removing or altering genes? Yes. Have you found anything particularly cool from doing that? Well, we haven't made a limb out of a fin yet. <laughs> no, I haven't done that. Um, but it's, it turns out you can get very equivalent effects by knocking certain genes out. So if I turn off certain genes that make a wrist and say a mouse, and I turn those genes off in a fish fin, I end up affecting the terminal end of a fish fin in interesting ways, right? So it seems like these genes, even though they're not making fingers in fish, they're active in a common compartment of a fish. So there's, there's something about these compartments going from near the body, which is called proximal, to away from the body, which is called distal, there are these um, genes that control the development within these compartments, a arm compartment, a forearm compartment, a wrist compartment, a digit compartment. We have components of that in fish fins. And so that's what we're asking is how do you set up these compartments? Because they clearly predate the evolution of limbs, even in fins. So you already have these compartments. And so we're asking how they form. So 
that's what we, CRISPR can do. We can mess them up a little bit and see hmm. predictably, see what genes are controlling what. So are you able to extract the genome from these fossils or any anything like that? No, no, no we're limited to living fish and living amphibians. Uh, TikTok's 375 million years old. That's probably about 374.5 million years too old to get DNA. <laughs> Well, the, the last thing that I wanted to ask about is you mentioned our heads uh, being related to, to these ancient fish heads. And how does this, how, how are they connected? What is, I mean, how does, it, how does this relate to the origin of terrestrial feeding? Oh, well, you know, all kinds of stuff there. So I, I mean, I could spend the next two hours on this, but the, the, the key, here's the coolest thing. Okay. Is if you look at us as embryos, right? Look a few weeks after conception. Let's take an embryonic kneel a few weeks after conception. What you're going to find is a series of bones, rods, that form in what's called the pharyngeal area. And they have a little pocket between them. And there are cells inside there. Those little rods, those little swellings, will form muscles and nerves and bones and arteries. In fish, they form the gill apparatus. In us, they form the lower jaw and bones in the middle ear, parts of our voice box, parts of bones that control our throat, as well as the muscles and nerves and bones that control all that stuff. So in a developmental sense, if I compare the embryo of a fish to the embryo of a human, many of the muscles and nerves and arteries and bones I'm using to talk to you with right now, using my jaw and ear and so forth, will uh, correspond to the gill structures in sharks and fish. And we know that from development, because I can see the comparison between the gill arch, the so-called pharyngeal or gill arches in our embryos compared to um, fish embryos. But I also know from fossils, a whole different line of evidence. I could trace one of those gill bones in a shark, trace it through to lobe fin fish, trace it through to amphibians, all the way up to people, and I could show that gill bone becoming a bone in our middle ear. So mm -hmm. what's beautiful about sort of the detecting history using fossils, and embryos, and I didn't get into the genes, but genes fit in here too, is we could put all these lines of evidence together to see how these great transformations happened, how a jawbone became an ear bone, I'm sorry, how a gill arch bone became an ear bone, how our heads were transformed and how they're related to the structures in fish. And sharks. Hmm. Well, uh, Neil, this has been a, a, a great tour of some of the inner workings of evolutionary biology and then the transition from water to land. So thanks so much for talking with me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Nice.